Zach and Sully, welcome back. I'm glad you decided to come back and talk more about e-learning. First of all, did you get much response back from the first podcast? Like, What was the general feel with people you'd shared it with? I'll let Zach go first. <laughs> um, sure, I'm happy to go first. Feedback from people? I think a lot of people found it a really interesting topic to tune into. However, having said that, some of the people that I shared it with, they're not industry people. So whilst they felt it really interesting a topic, they didn't necessarily have the kind of stamina to keep at it until the end. But the general consensus of the feedback that I got was that it taught them stuff that they didn't necessarily really knew about the industry, especially at a time like now where, you know, online interactions, online meetings, online learning is so prevalent in all aspects of the society. People are sort of intrigued about what's happening behind the scenes uh, to listen to people like us who are in the engine room pumping these kind of stuff out. I think it's really interesting to them. I had uh, similar feedback from people who worked in learning in general, but not necessarily digital learning. They found it very interesting to hear about how we approach things, but then may have tuned out a little bit when we got quite specific um, about authoring tools. And that's fine. And then a couple of people as well who are from outside the industry uh, found it an interesting insight because as I think is sometimes common with digital, people aren't quite sure how the sausage is made, you know, when things are quite physical, you can kick a piece of machinery and kind of work out this is how it's put together. So I think it was just in good insight for them to kind of go, oh, I, I think I've done an e-learn before and kind of called to go, well, this is probably how people make them. Awesome. Yeah, I had similar. So as you know, I've been doing bits and pieces on social media and mm-hmm. in general, across all of the podcasts, I've had a pretty good response like in general, it's just been a lot of likes, but this one in particular, I think it's because we're all professionals in the same industry. I had the most like direct feedback um, via comments or private messages around it being a good introduction to people who are familiar with e-learning or even the professional. Um, they found it really insightful. So that's why I was very keen to have you two back on the pod. <laughs> very glad um, to be back. Very glad to be back. So... This episode, I heard a story uh, a few days ago around actually my partner, she had like a new boss and she was saying that the online learning that she had taken was some of the best e-learning that she's seen before in the organization. Mm -hmm. So my general overarching question that I want to explore today is how do you build a good online learning legacy in an organization? So that when someone takes an online course, um, they want to come back to learn more. Or even as a contractor, how do you build that legacy that well, you've worked for a client and then they just have to have you back on another project or you know another big program to create? So how does that sound? I'm, I'm, yeah. I think it's fascinating. There's a whole bunch of thoughts already happening in my head. <laughs> what general thoughts do you have? Sorry. So the first one is, it's going to sound like a very academic thing is why how do we want to measure this? Because one of the first things that sprung to my head was, you know, net promoter score stuff, which, you know, at times can be incredibly pointless and other times can be quite valuable. So then the other one was also just user feedback. Uh, is, that, is that how we want to measure this? Or is it that ultimate let's measure behavior change and, you know, performance impact yeah. element of success? Look, uh, for me, I'm at heart, a massive advocate for social learning. And I think there are things within the the social learning theory that we can really draw on here. The question there was, how do you leave a legacy with the e-learning that you produce? And if I had to put it into a nutshell, I think the simplest form in my answer would be, don't create something that is the same. And then if we unpack that a little bit, and linking that back to the social learning sort of theory is create something that is discussion worthy, right? So we see now nowadays a lot of social media things going viral. Things don't go viral because the content producers have like a two-minute quiz at the end going out of five, how much do you like my content, <laughs> right? They go viral because you watch the 30-second video and you go, this is so 
insert word, either funny or impactful or whatever it is. Right? Horrific. Mm. Horrific. Um, <laughs> but it arouses some sort of an emotional response. And it's that emotional response that prompts them to want to tell their friends, their, their family, their colleagues about that piece of content. Now, if we can harness that mechanism, if you will, when we're creating learning and focus more on when the learner consumes this piece of learning, instead of going, what can we do to get them to give us a five-star review on our feedback form? Instead of doing that, uh, think about what can we give them in this piece of learning that is going to prompt them to want to tell the next person? I feel like that's the key to more people wanting to do this piece of learning. And at the end of the day, you end up with something that lasts, lasts longer. So really thinking about how can we make corporate learning, quote unquote, go viral. And is that where the social sides or these social platforms come into play then, which is pretty much like an evolution of an LMS yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look around today, in most of the sort of tier one or even tier two corp companies here in Australia, at least, people are slowly moving or quickly moving on to the next generation of learning platforms. And a lot of them already know not to call it the LMS because in the traditional sense of the word, our understanding is that the LMS is where you go to access a SCORM file or go to register, worse, to go to register um, for a course. Whereas the newer generation of the learning platforms, a lot of the times, more often than not, you'll see social learning elements incorporated into these platforms. I know the big players on the market, Cornerstone, the newest version has a social learning um, aspect. Success Plus is lagging behind a little bit. So success factors lagging behind in that aspect a little bit, but nonetheless going in the same direction. There are smaller companies like Janison. They have a bespoke uh, learning platform that they've created, which is heavily centered around this social learning behavior and using social learning to prompt people to learn. So this is where the industry is going, at least from a hardware infrastructure kind of level. So then the other part of that same equation is the producers of the content. So people like you and me, we need to start thinking about how do we create the right content that is going to harness the power that the new learning platforms give us in all the social learning functionality so that our content can really shine. And I have a quick fire question on the content. So this is to both of you. In your experience, has the content been developed generally in-house or has it been developed by a vendor, the really impactful online learning? I'm going to say the really impactful stuff. Has, well, I've, I've seen both, uh, both in-house and produced by a vendor. I've got something to add, but I'll let um, Zach answer. It's really interesting to hear you lead with that because in my personal experience, I've had the privilege and luxury of working with in-house teams who strive for the more impactful stuff. So my answer sounds like it's going to be a little bit in, in contradiction to yours, Sully, is that mostly the really cool stuff was done in-house. Yeah. And is that because they generally have the context to that, more context to the organization and how it applies to the learners? Well, yes, yes, uh, yes. And it's not only just the context part, but also I think the other sort of more mundane stuff like budget, um, project timelines, a lot of the times what I see end up happening is a company will go external and go to a vendor when they're short on time and they just need something anything. Whereas in-house, there's proper budget given to, let's say, a specific project. And within that budget, there is a lot of freedom to push the boundaries. What I, what I was going to add is making a distinction between the content and the platform development. So as an example, if you want to create a good little video, that's one thing, and I've seen some people do that really well. But then the other part is also people using platforms such as Curator or Canvas, where a good learning designer can say, well, okay, I'm going to put this before the video, then I'm going to put the video, then I'm going to put this section afterwards where people can rate or comment or whatever it might be. And 
that part I think is, I don't know whether it's best done by in-house or a vendor, but it definitely has to be done by someone who understands how to weave that together for the audience. Uh, and I've uh, seen some good examples. Actually, I'm having a meeting with some friends who work in Canvas end of next week to learn a little bit more about how they do that because it's one thing, I said, one thing to create little bits and pieces individually and they can be you know, good or less good, but their ultimate success kind of rests on how they are then woven into the actual social learning platform. So it's not just yet again, here's 100 things to work through um, before you slip into a coma and retire. <laughs> so... And the reason why I asked that is because I was doing some reflecting on the content between vendors and in-house teams and organizations. And my conclusion was that I sat on the fence and the content is just as good as each other. But the reason, but when I unpacked the in-house teams, when I looked at the, what was driving the really good content, it was a team that were guided by a team of best practice, best practitioners. So there was a team who exclusively only looked at tools and best practices for the tools. There was a team that exclusively looked at maybe just the LMS side and best practice and process for the LMS. There was a team that had um, learning design principles, which then guided the learning creators, which created that really um, nice contextual content. And then when I looked on the vendor side, it was the smaller teams who probably didn't have as a bigger L&D team, um, but more partnered with the vendors to create something really good. So I couldn't find one better over the other. My conclusion was it's down to circumstance. I, I'd agree with that because sometimes a vendor may not, um, just in the scope of the agreement, may not have much say over the way the ultimate um, piece of content is presented. It might just be, we want you to create a short video. Like, okay, God, well, you know, we would like to do better or more, but that's that's our remit. Yeah. Or other times it's the opposite where they've got a really wonderful, uh, and I've seen this as well, got a, a wonderful uh, LXP or LMS, but then the actual individual pieces of content are essentially just PowerPoint slides. 100% totally agree. And, you know, again, this could be really easily kind of illustrated by food again. You know, it's kind of like asking the question, is it healthier to eat at home or is it healthier to eat out, right? And Dan's answer would essentially be, um, well, it depends on what you've got at home and where you're going to go to eat out, right? If you've only got canned food and spaghetti at home, of course, eating out is going to be better. But then again, if you've got fresh fruit and veg at home in your fridge um, and eating the eating out option in t- uh, consists of going to Macca's, then potentially eating at home would be more healthy, right? <laughs> yeah. So with COVID, would you say that the quality of online content is getting better because people have had to develop those skills? Or would you still say that there's still room for improvement in general with, with online development content? Two ends for that. I think initially it was bad and no one's fault particularly, but a lot of L&D people, um, as I'm sure you were asked to do this as well, was just really quickly just convert a whole bunch of in-person stuff to virtual or something else. So initially through no fault of anyone's really, it would have been not amazing. But I think now that the bulk of that has calmed down, or hopefully it's calmed down for most uh, L&D professionals, people have got time to go back and say, okay, well, we understand that this didn't work. Making people sit in a WebEx session for five hours was uh, terrible. Let's see what we can do there. So I think through just the experience of having that happen, people are making some better decisions now, even if they previously didn't have time to read up on what's optimum, you know, number of minutes for a WebEx session. Yeah, totally agree as well. Again, there, I don't tend to see it in the light of whether COVID has ended up producing higher quality or not as good quality learning, but rather looking at at it from an angle of is COVID happening good for the overall trajectory of e-learning? And when you look at it from that angle, the answer is a resounding yes, because, you know, when COVID first happened, people are rushing in to do things online based on a pure necessity. It's either something online or nothing at all. And Based on that, we saw, obviously, the results manifest itself. But from a long-term trajectory, I think COVID's done 
amazing things for the industry and you know people's awareness across different industries as well to the potential of e-learning and also the urgency of which we need to harness this potential prior to that because there was so many other options around that digital learning just never took center stage but with covid it was a forced thing and now that it's been forced to take center stage all of a sudden everything can start going into motion there are more people that are maybe pulled in from adjacent teams that were never really digital learning or learning people we've got this influx of talent and people in this area of hr and learning that i suspect 12 24 months down the track we're really going to see the positive uptick um a positive effects that um covid has had on our industry and for that i'm really really excited yeah, actually, just uh, that made me think of an example where uh, I think people are far more aware of some of the levers that are used to make uh, digital engaging. Because that's often a common request. I'm sure you guys get it all the time. It's like, wow, we're going to make it engaging. Okay, I think because, yeah, <laughs> yeah, because I think because everyone's working from home now, people are starting to realize, oh, everyone's doing Zoom meetings. And so there's other aspects such as it's got to be more than just engaging, or I know more about what I mean when I say engaging, such as don't make it long, make it shorter, and don't make it heaps of text to read. Whereas previously, they may not have cared or been aware of that as being uh, a consideration or factor. But now people are more uh, aware of what it is that will make it a little bit better. So a bit of a personal question, what are some of your pet hates when you look at some online learning, what are some bad indicators from your professional lens of bad examples of e-learning or digital learning? <laughs> Sorry, you go first. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I have one thing that springs to mind. I mean, again, it's the engagement thing is too many clicks. Is I literally said this to someone the other day. You know, uh, engagement and interaction are all the same thing. I can make something highly engaging with a small number of clicks, or I can make something that is completely boring but with a hundred clicks. So just because you've got to click and open and close and click next, click next, all that kind of stuff doesn't actually mean it's more engaging. It might keep you awake a bit more, but I don't know if that's, you know, and then the ultimately is it impactful. So that's one of mine is the, and I think we talked about it in the last one where it's that version of PowerPoint was a thing and everyone overused all the functions. It's like, if it just needs to be three dot points of text, just let it be three dot points of text. No need to make it overly, you know, interactive a little piece so that's probably my pet hate is um, excessive interaction and Juzak and particularly is there anything that Elon developers typically always miss or forget to do your question sounds like you have the perfect story. <laughs> so I'm keen to hear what your, your, your answer to that is um, oh, something, something particular that uh, e-learning designers always miss is it I feel like there must be something, but naturally, I mean, reverting back to your first question of pet hates, my head goes straight to over-restriction because if you were asking the question in a different format, um, being do I like in good e-learnings, which is kind of like the other side of the same coin, um, the only real requirement I always have is, is this fun? Is this a fun piece of learning? Am I enjoying going through this? And so coming back to answering your question in the format that it's been asked, if something that is overly restrictive, it all of a sudden becomes laborious and not fun, right? I mean, you know, as soon as I say it, we'll all go, yeah, yeah, I've seen those ones where you must click every interaction before you can go to the next bit. That's not fun. You know, we're professionals, right? The youngest of, of the people that are in the corporate environment, what I want to say, are at least 20 years old, right? Well, they're adults. Adults don't need to be forced to click everything before you go next. I mean, I've got, you know, seven-year-old little nieces and nephews that don't even need that. So, yeah, for me, if, if a piece of learning isn't fun, then it's automatically not hitting the mark for me. Um but Dan, I'm keen to hear what you um, what you would say to to that question of what is what what is this? What are some of the things that e-learning designers always miss? I didn't have a particular story, but I was kind of comparing it to 
um, like a carpenter making a table, but then not polishing it at the end. So and it would just be subtle things mm. like maybe if they if they inserted a video, not adding captions or not adding transcripts and that sort of thing. That really kind of grinds grinds my gears when I see it's small, but it makes a big impact when you go to deploy it. The only other ones I had was the typical converting a PowerPoint copy and paste into whatever tool. And then Soddy alluded to it, using all of the bells and whistles of a tool when you don't need it. You know, if it's a table, you know, it doesn't need six legs or a drinks holder. It just needs to be a table. So sometimes I think that um, less is more. So on, so on the flip side, okay, this might be an easier question. What is a good indicator of some good e-learning or any e-learning that you've experienced? Uh, I'd like to say the first thing is that a huge part of your brain is actually being spent on the learning, not on trying to understand how that particular e-learning module works. And it's the same thing when you go to a website where like, you really like what they're selling, for example, but you just cannot find the filter to go, I just need to filter to just to jeans or just leather that's black or whatever it might be. That's, I think, one where you can see it's really good because people can really clearly work through, right, I'm in at topic one, now I'm at topic two, now I'm at the reflection section, now I'm at topic three, or if I need to pause to check something in a definition or click out or whatever it might be, it's really smooth and simple just to go bang, bang, bang through it. So then they can spend all their brain just going, being engaged. Yeah, yeah. Um... Just while you're saying that, how I had a thought, a bit of a flashback. I think in many aspects, the web design industry um, parallels um, the e-learning industry in that both are trying to convey information through a screen, essentially, and interacting with your user or your learner. But having said that, I think the web design industry has sort of surpassed that phase of its natural progression where kind of weird and wonderful bells and whistles were a thing. If you think back to maybe the early 2000s when flash websites were a big thing, right? How many cool websites have you been to? And I'm pretty sure all of the big marketing and big brand companies have had one stage, had one of these sites where you go in there and it's super flashy, but you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure Macca's or McDonald's might have had that. Nike definitely had that. All the luxury houses, you know, Gucci, Prada, LV, they've all had that at one stage. And then they've kind of realized, wait a minute, all the cool stuff isn't going to get me what I want to convey. And then they've kind of surpassed that. Whereas for us, the e-learning industry, I think we're still somewhat at that stage some of the times where you've got a brand new e-learning designer coming on and they're just discovering all these tools, automated animations, automated interactions, and they're using it to no end. So yeah, just while you were saying that, it, it kind of reminded me of the web design industry about two decades ago. Can I just add to that? Sorry, um, and not to take us too far off topic, but I think that comes back to the original question about what, you know, creating a legacy. I think part of what's enabled the web design industry to move faster is it's been coupled very strongly with marketing. So there's been data and there's been deliberate, let's test two different websites and see which one works well. Ultimately, which one provides us more revenue and more customers and for whole number of reasons that hasn't happened it happened in the learning industry so uh, it, moved, it has moved a lot more slower before people worked out yeah if i have a video that functions like this or it's got to have a loading screen every time you move to the next one this is annoying anecdotal evidence exists but for whatever reason there was no big bits of data to say right this is annoying simplify it mm. i think well our attention span has diminished um so i think those loading screens just become annoying to your point solly on a side note i don't know if you've ever experienced this zach but you know when like you're over an application or whatever for whatever and it asks you what your occupation is it never has elon developer so the closest one i always do is web developer have you ever done that Maybe just me. <laughs> yeah, there are only very few times where I've seen e-learning called out specifically. Mm. I wonder if that's going to catch up now that we've got an injection of new talent into the industry based on what's happening with COVID. Mm. But for now, I totally see what you mean. Yeah, it's not one of those 
occupations that are just there by default, like a lawyer or a, <laughs> or, or a HR person, right? Mm. Yeah, actually, that's, I think, the categories I've used before on surveys. You, either, you can't say education because they mean schools, so you end up saying HR. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, it's one of the key things where I've seen or some really good examples of good e-learning. Um, so two things. One, where I or the learner is an active participant in the outcome. So we've seen lots of examples now of maybe scenario-based where you can navigate through a scenario, you can interact with somebody, and based on how you interact with them um, determines the determines the general feeling or the outcome, which I think is really cool because you can experience different scenarios and you can fail, fail fast and fail safe. Mm-hmm. And then the other one, I don't know where I heard this before. Um, I think it might be at a conference, but someone had said that... If I'm at work and I've messed up or I've made a mistake, I don't want to hear in this learning module, you will learn X, Y, and Z. You just want to know how do I fix the problem? So I think really good examples of e-learning now are very much task focused. I'm in this team or this division. This is my role. I need to be able to do this and then be able to go to that single piece of learning, whether it be a quick reference guide, video, um, whatever, and really start to target your particular task you're trying to do. Yeah, I think part of that, from my experience, um, part of that comes from the modality. So people put those sorts of things in there because back in the day it was in-person training. It was a whole day. So you'd start with an agenda and here are the learning objectives and you know, hopefully people would be excited by that. So some of that has filtered through. Then the other part I think is as learning has developed beyond sort of certifications and training where you have to be very clear what the customer's buying, here's the objectives. Um, people have jumped uh, more and more to just, here's the thing that you're going to achieve at the end. So jumping to performance outcomes. So, you know, and then with micro learning and short snippets of this is how you submit your timesheet, for example, no one needs to start with. By the end of this, you'll know how to submit a timesheet or just go, It'll just jump straight into it, open this, click this, type in your number, hit submit. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So I'm going to change tech slightly. Um, mm-hmm. And so I know generally now when you're building any kind of learning, it needs to be accessible and it needs to be mobile enabled. But in my experience, I've found it very difficult to get people on board on the mobile side. Just wondering your thoughts or your experience and how you've managed to, you know, face into that challenge of getting people to access learning on their mobile device. Because generally, when they step through the doors of an office, they're going to go to their laptop. That's going to be their first point of call. But I guess now we're trying to not move away, but offer something else. I just haven't seen the general uptake yet. I was wondering your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's a really interesting one because when you really think about it, right, What gives somebody a motivation to want to do work-related learning when they're not at their computer, i.e. when they're not at their desk time, right? So that's the fundamental question that I feel like we need to answer first. Whilst a lot of learning platforms are also mobile-enabled, and that's definitely something that's been considered, I don't think it's mature enough in terms of user appetite. I don't think the user's have a good enough reason to want to take up this piece of technology. And if we keep pushing it, we'll run into, I fear, a situation where it's technology trying to lead user behavior versus the other way around. And we all know that that's probably less than ideal in any which field. But if you really had to look at it, if you really had to consider, okay, how do you get people to want to use or consume learning on their mobile devices because it's already there, then I think the answer is one that's really simple, is what are you doing to making them want to do it? Yeah. We, in our personal lives, we naturally reach for our phones, but to do what? A quick think of that question, a quick consideration of that question, and you will come up with a handful of answers. You know, I want to watch a quick YouTube video. I want to go on social media to see what my friends and family are doing, or there's a funny thing somewhere that I want to check. Beyond the utilitarian stuff, like I want to check my bank details, um, I want to check my emails, those kind of things. So two big categories. One is I actively want to go because it's fun. Mm -hmm. The other one is I actively want to go because I have to. 
So in the corporate learning context, are we giving them one or the other? Well, the first category, we're not really giving them, I'm fairly confident in saying that because we're not quite there yet as an industry. We're not pouring enough into what we're creating to make it something that has a power of draw to our learners just yet. It's not that fun. It's not that enticing just yet. And the second category there is, well, is there anything there that I must go and do? Well, not really, because anything that they must do that is work-related, why would they choose to do it on their own time on a smaller screen versus when they're at their desk time on the bigger screen? So when you don't have a tick on either of those categories, on either of those boxes, it's always going to be hard to push forward the agenda of mobile learning for work onto our learners. There's, there's just no pool. There's just no reason. So just quickly before you jump in, so, so what would yeah. be a very quick way then of forcing them to use their phone? Is it something simple like, you know, giving them a QR code? Is something like that or... Are you still competing with all the notifications, all the fun things, the social media? So I think the QR code is looking more around the ease of access. And I think that's something that we probably can look at, but it's not the crux of the issue. The crux of the issue is we need to give them the want. We need to make them want to, right? So again, looping nicely back around to how where I started from, which is social learning. Can we somehow make it a social experience when they do use their mobile phones to access learning, then this is just, you know, out of the blue or off the top of my head, track how many times they've logged in on their mobile device versus on their laptop. Each time they log in on their mobile phone, they get 10 points versus one point only if they log on using their laptop. And they can see where their colleagues in their same teams, how many points their colleagues are getting. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, there's a want for me now. I want to gain more points so I can have this kind of like friendly competition maybe with my colleagues who I am genuine friends with or at least amicable with because we work together, right? That's how you start thinking about creating the want, the draw card for them to come in and use the mobile learning, not the content, not the how can we make it even easier because it's already easy enough. You send them an email, there's a link, it's one click on their mobile phone, which is always in their pocket or, or in their hand without the draw card, without the motivation, without creating the want for them, they're not going to do it. Yes, I've uh, got a couple of thoughts. Um, obviously, I always have thoughts. <laughs> I think one is, to, to, I think um, Zach alluded to this, is really thinking about the way people use their mobile phones and what they use it for. And I think one thing that we've um, probably seen a lot less of is with the pandemic is people aren't using their mobile phones during transit because no one's, you know, people are working from home. So where previously you might have thought about, oh, I'm up the podcast because people are traveling and they're on their way into work, they can listen to the podcast. So it's like, well, maybe they're not going to do that anymore. And then same when you're thinking about any other sort of piece of learning, it's like, well, who's going to use their mobile phone for that anyway? If it's a piece of compliance training or, you know, a 30-minute e-learn, I think people might use their mobile phones for learning that quickly reminds them how a task is done. For example, oh, I've lost my laptop. What's the process I go through to report my laptop being lost? That sort of learning, um, sort of like WikiHow kind of things. And again, that one, I think there's a consideration there around audio. So while people listen to a lot of things on, on their phone, if I'm rushing through an airport, which none of us are doing at the moment, but if I'm rushing through an airport, I don't want to have to put in my headphones and listen to, you know, click through a seven-minute video to find out what I'm supposed to do with my lost laptop or how I contact the office in the city I'm visiting to book a meeting room before I get there, that kind of thing. So I think a lot of, and we talked about bells and whistles before, a lot of bells and whistles are added to digital learning without considering, is anyone actually going to do this on mobile? And then even just, I've had feedback from <laughs> one person in my life who always said, you know, my emails were quite long. And he said, well, it's because I use my phone on the fly a lot. I use it like instant messaging. So if the email is too long, it's just too much to read unless I'm at my laptop because I'm rushing around a lot. So I think the same thing goes with uh, digital learning. It's all well and good to create something that can work on a mobile phone. But if people are really just using their mobile phones for work purposes in sort of 
one minute chunks for each little thing or even 30 second chunks and anything more than that unless it's a deliberate pause point they're just not going to do it and we probably have a lot of data now so i'm just going to say as developers is there any point in designing responsively or adaptively or should we always take that into consideration when we're building content that's a really good question from a supply and demand perspective I feel like the answer is, and this is not a populist answer, Mm -hmm. the answer is probably no, because I think at the moment, given the tools we have available to us um, being, you know, industry standard authoring tools, the effort that we put into deliberately making it mobile, um, mobile compatible and responsive may not give us the same amount of return in terms of effort uh, ratio. And that's, again, purely because right now, a, people don't use mobile for their corporate learning. And B, we really also need to ask ourselves, why is it that we want to push them to use, to consume learning on their mobile devices? What is the reason for us to do this? You know, it's really strange because we use our phone for everything else. Although I'm a big advocate of mobile learning, mm-hmm. for some reason, I don't do it that much. So, like, I'll do my internet banking, you know, I will go on social media, I'll message. You can pretty much do everything on your phone now. But there seems to be, like, a hard stop when it comes to corporate learning. I can't understand why. One idea I've just had is that maybe it has it's to do with the cognitive load. When I'm using my mobile phone, I'm not likely to watch a TED Talk or anything that's going to be too involved because I'm trying to make sure I don't miss my bus stop or I'm trying to make sure that I can hear the doorbell when deliverer arrives or I'm sitting on the couch with someone who's watching TV. <laughs> There's all this other stuff happening. So anything that requires, you know, more paying more attention, I'm going to do in front of a laptop when I'm sitting down, when it's quiet, when other people around me are also sitting down if it's in an office. So I think one of the challenges there is, well, we don't need to design for mobile learning if people aren't in a good situation to do it or we need to design learning that meets that, which is going to be never too deep, never too complex. It's going to be more a light thought prompt, again, more like social media. Here's a, a quote or a, an article, and now it's more about the interaction with each other socially, less about consuming the content. So remember last week when you all you know, did that online course on X or whatever it might be, what are your thoughts? And people are sharing thoughts and go, oh, I thought it was a terrible theory or I've tried it, works, and it worked once. So again, it's not super deep. If people are writing just quick answers, if you're requiring people to write whole essays and paragraphs, again, I'm not going to do it by my mobile phone. Yeah. I mean, the only time I've seen mobile work in a good sense is in virtual learning so when you're trying to encourage that active participation Mm. in like a group setting that's when i've seen it but in terms of like doing my i don't know my compliance or code Mm. of conduct training on my mobile device my default is my laptop yeah but i think that you've mentioned a good part where i personally call that hybrid learning where it's in person and there's technology in front of you such as all of you around a computer, which we don't do these days because of social distancing. <laughs> but that sort of learning where, you know, you're in groups trying to solve a problem and you've, all, you've got your computer that you're working on together or some more recent ones, such as got your mobile phone out and walk around the room and have some, you know, um, AR happening. Or as you said, using your mobile phone to respond in the moment to what's happening on the big screen or in front of you. But I think that's less about it being mobile learning it's more mobile response, mm. which is response in the moment, yeah, tech yeah. response. I definitely think that AR and VR is going to be one of the catalysts to people start starting to use mobile devices. Yeah. So in like five or ten years' time, what would you think, in your view, would be the thing that enabled people to do or consume or learn on the mobile device? What, what would be the one thing? This could be anything. I think fidelity. I think as we move into the next phase of this industry, the outputs that we are going to see are going to be more and more high fidelity and it's going to happen at a more quick, a faster and faster rate. And as such, I think we will get to a stage where the learning that we're outputting is actually enjoyable and fun to consume. And when that happens, 
I feel personally is when people are going to go, I either have the option of scrolling through Instagram or I can scroll three of the um, learning things. I'm not going to default it to video, but learning whatever that my work has kind of emailed us and both take the same amount of time. I'll probably spend 10 minutes scrolling through my Instagram versus, or I'll probably spend just 10 minutes going through the three learning things that have come out of work and both are going to be equally as enjoyable. The one is not tedious, more tedious than the other. I feel like that's what's, you know, we'll get to that tipping point in the coming years. So I was thinking, actually, my brain first went to Instagram where we know Instagram stories now. You can put a little quiz like, you know, do you prefer um, this outfit A or outfit B? Or you can have, um, I think there's a slider as well of, you know, how much you enjoy, whatever it might be. People can react. You can have, I think, the fire, um, the love hearts, the happy face. I don't know if there's a negative one. But I think that sort of thing will be another, will actually require it. I think a new type of learning design, yeah. but that sort of thing will, will happen where it'll be. And I know I'm going to contradict myself when I say this very interactive, <laughs> but maybe I don't mean interactive, but it's inviting genuine response to work out what people. So it might be more this is on mobile while you're walking around, or what about this is a quick quiz? What do you know? Three quick questions. There's just A or B, A or B, A or B. How much do you know this? And then using that to then feed into, well, now when you're back at your laptop, we've analysed this data in real time and this is the five-minute module that's going to be most suited for you in your situation. Yeah, so essentially it's going to be a separate component that complements the desktop version versus what I think we, the industry, have been trying to do for the last three, four years, which is make a version that's compatible with the technology, which I feel like it will never actually work that way. The other example that came to my head is... um, BuzzFeed quizzes, which I thoroughly enjoy, even though most of them are completely pointless. But, you know, you learn bits and pieces around them. Uh, I did a quiz the other day, and it turns out I am a uh, super fan of the TV show Friends because I got, you know, 23 out of 25. But it's just lighthearted, quick and easy. And I think depending on the content, it's not going to work for everything. You could just do that again and just, you know, literally two minutes, just whip through this quiz. And if it turns out you get two out of 10, then we know we really need to help you with this piece of learning. And if you get nine out of 10, great. You don't need to do that particular piece of learning. Or, you know, you can do your little social styles or communication styles and it says, oh, your style is a rhinoceros or whatever it might be. And then because of that, you're going to surface some of these in your LMS or LXP later on to say, okay, well, this is how other rhinoceroses like to communicate or whatever it might be. (laughs) It's the, the precursor. And this is why great minds think alike, right? Not saying that mine is a great mind, but I'm just kind of using this as a lead-in because I know Solly's mind is definitely amazing. And the fact that you just mentioned that we actually, or one of the projects that I worked on in recent years was exactly almost down to the T of what you described. So we, I won't mention the company's name, but they were implementing uh, Facebook for work as their corporate communication tool. And they found that the uptake after they've completely rolled out the technology within the company, people weren't using it. So we, the learning team, had to come up with a way to get people to want to use this platform, use this communication tool. And we actually did exactly what you described is we came up with a BuzzFeed style quiz that people can take and it's non-mentory, but we made sure that it's very prominent. And by taking it at the end of, I think, six or seven questions, you get a score and you get told which Disney character you are. Yeah. And this is fully corporate as well, mind you. With each Disney character as a result, you also get your social interaction style and a little blurb on, you know, how the um, new platform that we're trying to push um, may best be utilized by you that benefits you in your particular interaction styles the most. So using all of that to try and do an education piece that is more fun, social learning oriented. Yeah. So (laughs) when you were just describing that, I was like, oh, did he actually hear about the thing that we did? Because it's exactly what you described. (laughs) Yeah, as a priming piece, um, I'm hesitant to call it gamified because I, I see a lot of examples where people call it gamified, but really they haven't thought about the game and it's just a scoring exercise to try and get you excited or whatever it might be. But 
going back to the BuzzFeed example, I think one of the reasons why it works is it almost doesn't matter what the outcome is. You get excited by doing it. And I can totally see an example where you might have a couple of, you know, again, popular television programs when it comes to, say, leadership and management. And it'll come down and say, well, you're this character, say, The Devil Wears Prada. That's a classic movie where, you know, the, the main character was a, a terrible boss or was she? Was she effective and that kind of thing? So you could do a quick little quiz on that. It doesn't really matter what answer you get, but it's got you thinking about what makes a good leader, what doesn't make a good leader. And then you can go along into your little online course or even when we get back to it, you know, in-person course and say, right, well, everyone did this little two-minute quiz on their phone. Here's the results. Put your hand up if it turned out that you actually quite liked this sort of villain in terms of their leadership because of all these qualities. Let's now talk about leadership theory and, you know, all that kind of stuff and get into it um, without it being actually, you know, a fully gamified learning experience. But nonetheless, making it fun, right? Mm. And I mean, this is kind of a little bit well, a lot silly, but I would find it very fascinating if there was an example in the future around are uh, you Trump or Obama, you know, mm. something like that. You know, yeah. what makes this person, why do you, you know, here's a tweet, who do you think wrote this? I think there's a game of um, Kanye or Shakespeare or something like that. Um, and you kind of got to get a guess that, again, you could use that to talk about communication styles or to talk about personal brand. You know, this was completely incorrect, but a lot of people liked it. Why or why not? And then come and discuss it later on. So my view was, particularly with, this is where I think the future could potentially go with people using the mobile device, particularly in corporate loan. I think potentially the laptop could go and your sole device would be your mobile. So it would be something that you where you dock it, you go into work, you dock your phone and your phone effectively becomes your computer because, you know, phones have never been more powerful these days. And then maybe you're on a particular pathway of learning or any of the learning, the phone simply tells you, okay, leave it in the dock or pick up the device and experience it depending on what the modality is. That's where I think it could potentially mm. go. I just a thought I had, and this is probably a little bit too far-reaching, is I've only had this thought because I walked home from work today, so I checked my you know, heartbeat, heart rate to make sure I wasn't about to die. <laughs> and you know, I wonder if there's other data that you can get because a mobile device is you know, with you wherever you go. Maybe there's other information there, for example, without getting too creepy. I know that Apple Watches, for example, can tell you that you've been sitting down for too long. Mm. So maybe some data like that could prompt a very quick little learning piece around, let's remind you about physical wellness because you're working from home now and you've been sitting in the same chair for ages or even screen time stuff. You've been staring at your screen for too long. Um, this, this is actually a non-mobile thing or it's a mobile activity where the mobile is in your pocket. Go for a walk around the block. <laughs> um, there might be other pieces of information like that to that the mobile phones can gather maybe that's another podcast like the well-being piece with technology i think this must be accelerating rapidly during this time mm. i can imagine or just on that it's the well-being away from technology yeah yeah that would be a really interesting episode i reckon it's so relevant to everyone if you want to talk about it or if we can bring another guest on let me know i'm on the lookout <laughs> but guys that was really good so the final thing and what i'm going to start doing for all of my guests now is just to share anything you're reading you're listening to it doesn't have to be anything to do with e-learning but if there's anything that you think would be quite interesting to anybody listening anything that you're looking at do you have anything in mind I've got one actually that sort of links to what we've just talked about is, again, thinking about the way people use their mobile phones is having a little, and I know these exist because I've seen a few on online, is coaching chatbots. So, again, it's that instant response fact. So, you've just gone in and had, you know, delivered an amazing pitch to your client. You're really nervous about it. When you exit the meeting room, you open your mobile phone out to just, you know, check what your next time your next meeting is. And similar to when you exit the Uber, the last thing you do is, you know, give yourself a star rating. And then this little coaching chat bot or AI can look at it and go, mm, the last couple of client pitches you've been to, you gave yourself a rating of two out of five. How do you feel about that? Awesome. Any, any particular ones? Is it like an app or any, any particular examples you've seen? I've seen 
I've seen two different types. One is a coaching one, which it asks you, I don't know how exactly it knows, but asks you coaching style questions around, just think back to an event today. What did you do well? What did you do well? That kind of thing. And then the other one is learning ones where I think that they're more somewhere or other supposed to prompt you, sort of like the Noom diet, I believe, a little coaching. I'm not quite sure. Something like that. Awesome. <laughs> Give Noom a plug as well. <laughs> I only say that because I Googled it the other day and I'm not convinced it will work for me, but it did make me wonder about, again, the whole mobile thing. It's right there with me. I'm not going to wait for an email to say, do this, do this bit of learning, yeah. reflect on your most recent experience. But if it popped up on my phone in a non-annoying way, then I might listen to it. <laughs> awesome. And Zach... I seem to have taken a bit of a break from my usual routine of intentional sort of learning um, just over the past maybe three or six months. I normally have a pretty good routine. I don't know why I've kind of let that go. Maybe COVID's getting to me. However, one thing I will mention is based on what we've discussed about you know, outputting digital assets that are more engaging, that are more high fidelity. I think something that I consciously or unconsciously, uh, subconsciously, always conscious, um, but subconsciously doing all the time is whenever I consume mass media, which includes anything that is social media based or TV based or Netflix, Prime or Stan, I always analyze what I'm actually watching from a media perspective, so multimedia perspective. When I'm watching the seven o'clock news and there's a you know two and a half minute ad break that comes up, mm. the ads that come on usually gives me really good insight, not only just into where the industry is trending right now, but also what is our potential consumers of our learning um, being fed in other forms of media. So the people that consume our e-learning modules or e-learning um, objects are the same people that all have TVs at home and they watch TV or they watch Netflix or whatever. So if Netflix or Channel 7 or Network 10 is giving them a specific style or a specific level of quality of media or information through media and we're giving them something that's far lesser in quality, then the result is obviously, you can imagine what the result would be. So essentially, really kind of keeping an eye on what the other industry doing when it comes to trans, uh, transferring knowledge through media and analyzing it intently yeah. and seeing what we can harness or distill or learn from these other industries and use it in our own. Yeah. Because I think the end goal is the same. doesn't matter if you're in the e-learning industry, the marketing industry, the movie industry, the radio industry, network television, finance. We all want to give our audience some information. Yeah. And we are all competing with every other piece of information that everyone else is trying to give to them through the screen. So some people do it better. Some people are still trying to catch up and we can learn from the people that do it really well. I totally agree. I think you see it and you start to go, well, how, what's the thing they're trying to get me to do just beyond the providing me information? Obviously, an easy one is buy whatever they're, they're selling. And what can I learn from this for learning? Absolutely. Great. And my share is, so it popped up when I started talking about our attention span and maybe our ability to retain information isn't as strong as it used to be. And one type of tool that I haven't really seen used as that much is space repetition tools. Have you ever heard of these tools? So there's one called... Not heard of them, but I think... There's one called Ranks that I remember. And basically you answer some questions and you rate yourself. And then over time, it will start asking you those questions again and again until you retain the information. So I don't know how they're deployed actually. Maybe they're their own platform, but that's one thing to look out for. That's my share. So looking at space repetition tools. I think that would we'll be really be looking into that. Yeah, definitely. There you go. There's your little nugget. I, w I would say that the really rudimentary version of that is a marketing campaign. How many emails will we send? What email do we send if the person clicked and opened it? And what email should we send if they didn't open it? Mm. Um, spaced over time before the event where the ticket sales are. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> 
Great, guys, thank you very much. And we will chat again on the next one. For sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us back on. Always very, very good questions.